Welcome everyone to the Friday the 13th edition of Legal Tech Week, the show where we talk about the top stories in legal tech and innovation over the past week and uh, whatever else suits our fancy. I'm Bob Ambrogi. I am the uh, host of this show and I also have a blog called Law Sites and a podcast called Law Next. And uh, let's see, from my upper left, Steve, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I am uh, Steve Embry. I, I have the blog Tech Law Crossroads about legal technology and innovation. And um, I am also chair of the ABA Law Practice Division this year. Awesome. Which, by the way, today is the last day to get your applications in for Startup Alley at ABA Tech Show. Yep. Closing the applications today. Uh, Joe. Uh, I am Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I am not uh, all that good at legal tech, but I am staying in a Holiday Inn Express right now. So that, <laughs> if anyone remembers that commercial. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm on the road, but I was able to get an early check-in. So I'm able to uh, join us today. And apparently the Wi-Fi even works. It does. It's actually kind of nice. And all the way from the UK, Caroline. Uh, yeah, Caroline Hill, I'm Editor-in-Chief of Legal IT Insider, based in the UK, but we've got a global audience talking about all things legal tech. Right. And all the way from upstate New York, Nikki Black. <laughs> Such an exotic location. Um, my name is Nikki Black. I am the um, head of uh, SME and external education at uh, MyK slash LawPay slash Affinipay. Um, and I write legal tech columns for uh, uh, ABA Journal, Above the Law, Daily Record, and sometimes other outlets as well. And I also oversee the My Case Law Pay um, uh, reports. We do benchmark reports and we do a legal industry report every year and I um, help draft those and write them. And in your spare time, you send interesting queries to ChatGPT. That's right, and, uh... <laughs> I'm obsessed. <laughs> And uh, Gino Grady. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Gino Grady. I am um, the author and editor of Dewey Be Strategic, which covers legal technology. Like, like, uh, I used to be able to speak. Uh, legal information <laughs> and knowledge management and any other interesting technology-related developments in the legal space. Uh, and I also write for Legal Tech Hub. And now we're firing chat GPT from writing your cue cards after that. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, somebody else who's been known to chat with chat GPT, Stephanie Wilkins. Uh, yeah. Hi, I'm Stephanie Wilkins, editor in chief of legal tech news at ALM and a big fan of chat GPT. <laughs> All right. Well, we thought we'd start this week since this is a show about legal tech with something that has absolutely nothing to do with legal tech, or maybe <laughs> it does. And we're going to have Steve Embry tell us whether it does, but he's just back from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. And uh, what happened? What was it like? Well, maybe I should put my hoodie on and well, I could sort of get in with <laughs> yeah, the motif absolutely. of the show. But uh, so, yeah, it uh, the Consumer Electronics Show, it's actually called CES. Uh, or branding thing, but it is the preeminent uh, global consumer tech show. Uh, attendance probably over a hundred thousand, um, twenty two hundred square foot square feet of exhibits, uh, 
it occupies the entire city of Las Vegas for about a week. Um, and, uh, you know, some observations. Number one, it looks like conferences are back. Um, I, it, from all indications, and I don't have a head count, of course, but it sure looked like the shows that they used to have, you know, a couple, three years ago. This was the first totally, well, not totally live. They had one last year, but it was sort of subdued given the pandemic. But uh, this year, it was everywhere. People were everywhere. Exhibits were everywhere. Sessions were everywhere. Parties were everywhere. Uh, I would like to say that I could count the number of people wearing masks on two hands <laughs> because they weren't many, including, you know, people that, that you typically would think would be wearing masks. Um, a lot of people from uh, the Far East attend, a lot of people from China attend, and, uh, you know, there were precious few masks. And I have to say there were a couple of times when I was on uh, buses going from one venue to the other or on the famous Las Vegas monorail when I was crammed in the seat and the whole thing was crowded. And I was thinking, I don't know if this is such a good idea or not, but I'm back. Uh, I'm not, knock on wood, I'm not sick. Um, you know, as before we started, uh, Caroline asked me, why do I go to this? Uh, and I try to go every year. I didn't go last year, but, you know, I'd, I think a lot of times the consumer products end up sort of driving a lot of things legal. Um, smartphones, smartphones, the cloud, mobile computing, artificial intelligence, all these things are kind of uh, evident at the at the consumer realm. And it's nice to see, you know, what what people are up to. Um, a lot of products that they show at this thing never come to pass in exactly the same fashion as they show. Uh, but uh, some iterations and adaptations of them, you know, ultimately do. One of the things I really like to do at the, the show is go to something called Eureka Park, which is where all the startups are. It's great. It's in a basement of uh, one of the convention centers. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's packed with exhibits. Uh, one of the really cool things I saw there, by the way, was, uh, you know, each, a lot of countries have, bring their sort of their, their technological uh, uh, departments there. You know, for the, you have French tech and you have Italy tech and tucked in between some several of those was Ukraine with um, maybe 10 or 15 exhibits. And, you know, it kind of made me feel good that they, they, uh, they, they were there, they were in force and they were smiling and optimistic and, um, you know, the other thing I like about the show is um, the, the mindset of the of the people there. Uh, you know, we go to legal shows, uh, all of us, and uh, sort of see the same people saying the same things over and over again. And then you see not anybody on, on this roundtable, but often you see articles by lawyers poo-pooing this technology or that technology, and it won't work. And it's Oh my God, it's got ethical ramifications, and you know, oh my God, the sky is falling. And then you go out to the to the CES, and you see people pushing the envelope and wanting to do new and different things, and it's just full of possibility. So, so it's exciting. Um, what did I see this year that really caught my eye? Uh, uh, MedTech is is really booming. Uh, lots of things to take out the the friction of experience with experiences with doctors and and the medical profession. Home monitoring, uh, telemedicine, 
you know, all those things. And to me, that was interesting because, um, you know, I think more and more people are going to be accustomed to that kind of experience and are going to think, why can't I have similar kind of experiences with lawyers? Why, Why do they make it so hard? To, to see them, to talk to them, to understand them, to get paid, to, to pay them. Um, so that, you know, I think will, you know, it's an interesting development. One of the more interesting specific products I saw, though, was um, this: these two guys have, have created an artificial intelligence platform, which they claim will ferret out algorithmic bias which could be used by lenders in the criminal justice system, what have you. So so it's like an algorithm to check the algorithm, I guess. Um, so, but, but I thought it was pretty cool that, you know, if it would really do it, I, I told the guy, I said, I don't know if, if your product's going to go anyplace, but you probably have one hell of a career as an expert witness. <laughs> and he, he said, yeah, you know, I've actually not thought of that. And uh, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I, said, you know, I should say, Stephen, when I said, why did you go? It was like, why did you go there? Why did you go? Like, I just wanted to start. The emphasis was a little different. I can see it. Sounds interesting. I've not been. Yeah. Somebody's yeah, asking if you remember a, the name of that company that, that that whose algorithm checks for algorithmic bias. Do you remember I'll, the name of that company? Yeah, I don't have it at the top of my head, but I'll look it up for you. Uh, but yeah, it was pretty cool. He's a pretty interesting guy. The, the other guy that was pretty interesting is, you know, he had this little, um, uh, he called it a pill, but you you swallow it. it has It's about the size of a thimble, maybe a little smaller than that. And it has LED lights on it, and it's it's connected via Bluetooth, and it can swim around in your stomach, and you know the doctor can control it and look for things and all that. And so it threatens the uh, the industry of endoscopic uh, examinations, I guess. But and, and he claimed, yeah, I've swallowed twenty of these. You know, it's no big deal. Finally, somebody said, Well, like, what would happen if if the thing disintegrated in your system? And he said. Very bad. <laughs> Could be like fatal. And so, okay, I guess we'll wait on that one a bit before um, I swallow one of those. Does he sell those outside of clubs as well? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Sounds like my kids on a Friday night. Like, what yeah. do we do with our LED yeah. lights this time? Yeah. <laughs> just those two products together, it just makes me think like um, the red pill from Matrix somehow. And then also this idea that. The algorithm's checking the algorithm, but who's going to make sure that the algorithm's doing the checking isn't biased? Right, like, right. you end up like in this sort of circular, you know, yeah. it gets, it's kind of ridiculous. You're going down. But, like- you know, it's a, it, it did occur to me in, in talking to him and other people that, you know, a lot of the, the technology that they're coming up with and already have is sort of changing litigation and the issues in litigation. You know, I mean, they're, they're, uh, there are uh, robots and drones that can very easily check for the potential of, you know, failure in water pipes or gas pipes, uh, which you know is a big source of litigation. And workplace safety is is being enhanced and improved by all sorts of devices and, you know, the artificial and and uh, metaverse training programs that they have. And so you may have a whole, you know piece of litigation that it will diminish over time and but in its place will be all these new and different issues that you know we haven't even thought through and we're going to try to 
how to cram into an existing judicial jurisprudence system that's been in existence forever. And, you know, it's, you know, sort of like the, the, the uh, issue about uh, uh, Uber drivers, are they employees or are they independent contractors? And I remember the comment of the federal district court judge handling the case and saying, they don't quite fit into either. I wish we could just like make a new category for these people and what they really are. And so I mean, it's kind of interesting to go out there and see all this stuff and uh, think what, what, what's it going to mean, you know, in another year, or two years or five years. So it's always fun. Um, I always come back tired, but I'm thankful I didn't come back sick. <laughs> You know, that whole uh, new category thing, uh, those those of you who were at Clio might have heard me talking about this because for some reason it kept, kept coming up at ClioCon, but uh, the, the whole idea of like, what do you do with these things and new category is interesting. I'm The reason I'm in a Holiday Inn Express is because I'm in, uh, I'm at the Naval Academy for a debate tournament. And like the whole, like our whole argument all year is about what do you do with algorithms that commit torts by the way in which they operate? Like, is it the fault of the person who programmed it? Maybe, or maybe it's actually the fault of the person who programmed it full of garbage data. Like, how does that work? And it's weird. There's actually some really good literature about ways in which you might want to create an insurance regime that like deals with that and creates pools of constantly filled with different people along the supply chain and spreading risk. Uh, There's, really interesting academic work happening about like how to deal with these new situations, cars and medical, uh, obviously medical malpractice with a drone is going to be a thing too. Like I didn't know how much had been written by folks about that until I started having to research it for this purpose. Well, if only you had a robot lawyer to defend you in court, uh, if you had that (laughs) kind of a case. What a, uh, one, one more interesting thing before I forget <laughs> it. That's a segue. That, uh, that they highlighted in one of the media. Steve's not going to let the segue go, though. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Was, um, was the use of artificial platforms uh, for cybersecurity purposes so that it would depend less on, you know, humans catching, you know, the phishing scam and, you know, being diligent and more on, on a program, artificial or a, a computer program to do that. And I uh, Boy, there's every profession that needed that. It's the legal one. <laughs> so I hope they're able to accomplish that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so basically the what's coming out of CES, or at least your perspective on it, is let's let the um, robots and the AI oversee all of the uh, issues that we don't want to deal with, like cybersecurity. And it, it just I, I that this is why I welcome robots every day on Twitter, because you've got to be <laughs> on their side, the robot overlords. Because if we're going to start handing all this critical stuff off to them, you better be friends with them when they take over. So I think everyone else. Well, but there are no robots on Twitter anymore because Elon Musk has gotten rid of all of that in his grand reform that is going so well. <laughs> well, I'm not welcoming the Twitter robots. I'm welcoming the actual robots that are going to take over. I'm just using Twitter as my form of, uh, you know, communication. Yeah, I mean, you guys can make fun of Nikki and me all you want, but we're going to be the ones that the robots like when they come. <laughs> right? Fair enough. <laughs> oh, we're not making it. We're all, we're all there with ChatGPT, I think. Um, but 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 speaking of robots, uh, yeah, let's let's try again <laughs> on bringing up this story. There was a story in the news. I don't know if, who who's going to take it. Joe, did you want to take it in terms of talking about a robot lawyer going to court, possibly? In a very yeah, uh, well. 
Well, no. So we did. We we already talked. Uh, I think it was last week. We had the conversation about how do not pay is going to be actually litigating a case, uh, a speeding ticket, uh, obviously, right, right, but is right. going to be in in court doing it. Uh, the follow up to last week's conversation is that do not pay is putting money where their confidence is uh, and putting up a million dollars to anyone willing to let their uh, their algorithm argue an su- upcoming Supreme Court case. Uh, it's an you know, it's a bold move. It, you know, gets headlines. It's also probably fairly safe for them as there's zero risk that the Supreme Court is going to let anyone do that. Right. Exactly. Um, that said, that said, some of the coverage, some of the coverage did say that they thought the no, they thought no party would let this happen because so many Supreme Court cases are such high stakes. And I was like, I don't know. I, I know of Supreme Court cases that are like pro se person complaining about their taxes. Like sometimes that gets all the way up there. That's the sort of so there are cases that reach the Supreme Court that I could see the litigant actually believing in this, but the Supreme Court way. itself won't. Well, well there's the little issue illegal? of the fact it's illegal, okay. isn't it, to take devices into court? Yeah, so I think right. that the way that I wrote right. you can't that, even bring um, an iPhone into a federal court. No. So I said that actually. He was he, he kind of got a little bit of you know Twitter the Twitter the Twitterati tore into him, inclu- including Bob, Bob. I saw you commented saying that he wouldn't be allowed. You wouldn't be allowed to take a device into the Supreme Court. There was tons of backlash against you know him. Sort of, but I thought it was I thought it was really yeah. funny. I mean, it got I'll give it got you a million a dollars to do something you can't do. <laughs> yeah, you you can take uh like you can get waivers to bring things in, and theoretically this would be one of those situations. But uh, but yes, it's not going to happen. For instance, I always was able to take a an iPhone into the Southern District because I had a letter from Sonia Sotomayor when she was on the Second Circuit saying anybody from but it wasn't my it wasn't my doing. I'm not that close with her, but the partner of my law firm was and he had gotten us all letters. Like these people get to bring their phones and leave them alone. So I always was able to do it. Wouldn't so you can that that is possible. Wouldn't it what? be malpractice if a lawyer like bit and agreed to do that? Mm-hmm. I mean it's one thing if a pro se litigant agrees to, but I think if a lawyer did well, also selling selling the outcome of your case for a million dollars seems like questionable ethics to me. Yeah, that alone. Yeah. Like, Let alone letting the AI yeah. like tell you what to say. Well, I mean, but but the but okay, well let me game this out. How different is how different is that right. than saying that uh is saying who you're hiring. You're you're putting the stakes of the case on somebody else. Uh I don't know. He's like I you but well you know, all of the I mean neither neither's Jason Neither is Jay Sekulow, but we let him argue tons of cases before the Supreme Court, um, it, depending on how you define lawyer. And uh, I define it with somebody who's competent. Uh, but but like so so I, I don't necessarily know about the malpractice angle of it. Plus, it's also fair to say they do sometimes allow amicus to, to give some conversation about what's going on in the amicus brief then. How much is that malpractice if you're having a friend of the court give some conversation? Like, I don't know as though that's malpractice at all. Do we have, do you actually have an obligation on a mal, on an amicus? Like, really? I, that, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question that I don't know legal uh, ethics wise, but 
do you, can you violate some some obligation to somebody who's not don't get party? oral argument though do they I mean, sometimes they do like, well, I mean, usually it's just the U.S. government, but I mean, theoretically, they could give it to other people. But there are tons of cases at the Supreme Court where the federal government is not a party and they let the solicitor general talk. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, um, even so, if you yeah. like, even if pretend the hypothetical where you could get this device in and they could, mm-hmm. no judge was going to allow this. Mm, I, mean, I actually had a long I, conversation yeah. with Judge Schlegel about this, who I is one of the more technologically mm-hmm. advanced judges. And he was absolutely mm-hmm. he was like, not in a million years. I would never let this happen in my courtroom. But how someone yeah. just pointed out that GPT is probably not up to. It. I mean, I know that, that you know, that, but yeah, I mean, for, for that was just one of many reasons why they wouldn't probably allow it. <laughs> But don't I, lawyers, you know, but lawyers bring already bring technology into court with AI that they're asking questions of and retrieving information. The judge isn't expecting every time a lawyer enters something into a keyboard to see how much of that it came from the computer and how much came from your brain. You but know? I think that, that this would all come. This would, this would all come from GPT, right? The idea, and yeah. this is what's happening in the traffic case. I actually think the most more, more interesting thing is this traffic case that they're going to have next month where they haven't disclosed the name of the court or defendant, but someone has agreed to have the, have the headphones in and say exactly what GPT tells in them. In a Zoom say. hearing, I think in a Zoom hearing though, right? Is it? Is, is it online? I think, is, is that what they said they're going to do? A Zoom I hearing? Thought it was, sure. I, would actually, I thought honest, it was in person. Read. But also the remember. issue with that is the article I read is that they're doing it to some unwitting judge. Like that seems like a prank to pull on a judge. Like Right. <laughs> that, that seems like This is why Google winning. pulled their yeah. their chat, their the assistant thing that would call mm-hmm. um, restaurants and make reservations for you, but the person taking the reservations didn't know they were talking to a computer. You know, the one that would say, um, yes, can you? And they pulled it because that was sort of disingenuous and people didn't like being faked out by AI. In this case, you're talking about a lawyer making a legal argument that's being dictated to by an AI. There's not even, doesn't even allow you to use discretion in terms of making the argument, at least along the terms that they've, you know. Yeah, um, the way they laid it out, not at all. No, and I think that's the difference to what Gene's saying. So Gene, I take your point about, you know, people are using tech and they are using different systems, but actually the, the, the difference is that it is dictating there is no discretion you know and you are being told you will repeat it, it it's it's quite categorical that you're repeating what gpt tells you to say yeah, that's pretty terrifying yeah <laughs> i just yeah. so like part of the part of the reason this operates mostly in the speed in the speeding ticket universe is this is a universe in which there is almost never representation it is almost constantly pro se uh even like ever, nobody, I mean, I know there are traffic ticket lawyers, but they're almost never hired, right? I hired one once. <laughs> oh, 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 fair enough. All right. So maybe in super complex <laughs> cases, perhaps, but speeding, probably not it, which, which brings me to, and that's my issue. And like when, when folks say, well, there's never a million years I'd let this happen. It's like, and so instead you want some like defenseless, non-legally trained pro se to just like pop off in your court about how, um, about how it's a maritime court and the aliens that wrote the declaration of independence. Like so many crazy people go in on the pro se side. Why not let a bot tell them, no, no, that's not what the law says. So would it make any difference if the bot had passed the bar exam? Because what a segue! Good, good, good segue. <laughs> Bob, you are on fire. fire today, Bob. <laughs> Bob. Bob is Jordan Game Six right here with his segues. It's just like one after another. 
Um, yeah, so there was uh, there was this story. We actually did allude to it a couple of weeks ago, I think, uh, I'm told, but uh, we didn't really get into it. But uh, there was this story, and I, I had it on my podcast this week, uh, of uh, GPT 3.5 taking the bar exam. Uh, Dan Katz and Michael Bomarito, who are both uh, scientists and scholars and lawyers, um, uh, uh, sat down over the really pretty much over the Christmas break uh, and uh, pulled together a whole bunch of uh, the uh, multi-state bar exam questions and uh, basically just had you know just uh, uh, had GPT gave GPT prompts based on uh, answering these bar uh, questions uh, and uh, tested it in couple of different ways in terms of how they gave the prompts to it and all of that but um, they were uh, they reported uh, and these are these are people who have worked in in the field of computational law for I don't know 20 years or so a long time um, they were amazed by the results uh, it didn't actually pass the bar exam but it did pass what I think it was evidence in civil procedure or evidence in tort something like that uh, and did pretty well on some of the other ones and, um, you know, the, I mean, the significant thing here in part is that this was completely untrained. I mean, this is just took GPT's, you know, trained on the large language model without any legal specific training. And there could be, you know, we don't know, there could be legal training out there on the large language model, but just completely untrained how to take the bar exam. Uh, and so if you had fine tuned it a little bit and trained it a little bit more on legal stuff, it probably would have passed. Uh, GPT-4, whenever that's going to come out, is probably going to pass. Uh, and uh, the the you know again their 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 point about this is not it's 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 sort of fun to think about it taking the bar exam, but the real question here that they were exploring was how well can GPT just kind of understand legal concepts and legal language because if it can do it on the bar exam, it can probably do it in a whole bunch of other con contexts as well. So it, it really does open up uh, a question. Well, A, what the heck is the bar exam all about? But uh, <laughs> B, you know, what does this uh, mean for the future of, of GPT in terms of the practice of law and, and what it can do? And I, you know, we've, we've talked about it last week. We talked about it a couple of times, but I think we really are on the uh, verge of dramatic uh, dramatic uh, uh, developments in, in this area. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, Bob, that they apparently they tried, they did this with the earlier version of GPT and it it didn't do any place close to as well as this it did this time, which would suggest that the next iteration may uh, may may pass all portions of it. But obviously like you, I mean, I sort of made me think, well, what is it we're really trying to to prove or establish with the bar exam when you can have you know a, an artificial intelligence platform answer the questions um, as well as a lawyer can or as well as a law student can? I mean, what what's the point? I guess at the bottom line of, of the bar exam when you have kind of the information available. Yeah, well, obviously that's probably it more than anything. But I mean, it—you would think that it 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 should at least give test the ability of you know people to analyze legal concepts and come up with solutions and 
I think what it really tests is yeah. more memorization of arcane facts like mm -hmm. the dead man statute and the rule against perpetuities, which, you know, I used like every day in my litigation practice for 30 years, you know, it's yeah. very important to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Whatever those know. concepts are, I can't remember now. No. <laughs> That's fun at cocktail parties too. <laughs> right. You know, so, Bob, you just raised case text, and I actually, that, I was thinking the same thing. Case text, parallel search, and all search are actually very close to be able to do contextualized question and answer, and they can they can feed to a lawyer an outline for a motion. So, I mean, I it's not based on J, J, JPT chat technology. It's another kind of technology that has very advanced contextual. I don't know whether you want to say understanding, but what I, where I see it could potentially go is raising the bar on what low-level work means. So could G GDP chat do say a, an, a draft of you know an interrogatory? Could it do the first draft of lots of things? So where it might take an associate a few hours to do it, it could be you you give it a few facts and a jurisdiction, and it, and it gives you some preliminary documents. Absolutely. The starting point, I mean, because like, and I'll say this, having been a junior associate at a big law firm, like it can probably do a first draft as well as, you know, somebody walking in the first day. But that's the key. It has to be a first draft. I mentioned before that I spoke to the um, head of innovation at one of the big transatlantic firms a, while, a couple of weeks ago, who has been playing around with gpt 3 and she gave it a bunch of really high profile cases that we, you know, in the, certainly in the UK, we would all have studied and that, you know, really sort of, def, sort of, you know, defining case law with very established legal principles. And it got it wrong. Um, and in the first, she's been sort of continuing to play around with it, but it didn't get them right. And it didn't, you know, come back with the right facts. And, and then eventually, you know, she carried on feeding it more information and then it did. But it's interesting. And, they, and I said, well, what are you, what are you, you know, are you thinking of anything practical? And she said, absolutely not. <laughs> not for the time being, you know, like um, I, I know that I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that this is not going to go that way, but I think right now people would be mad to, to rely on it. And I think it would take more work. You know, we were talking about the checking of the checking. <laughs> I don't know. Are we going to check that the facts? I don't know. I'm, I think for the time being, it's just from what I've had, the people who are playing around with it. I mean, your bar exam example is really interesting because obviously it nearly passed. So that's really interesting, Bob, because this is that's quite different to the experience of, of this um, innovation head that I was speaking to. Well, in Alabama, it probably did. Bob, I mean, Bob alluded to this when he was talking about it, that, I mean, the differences between GPT-3 and 3.5 are huge. And the differences mm -hmm. between 3.5 and when we get to 4 are going to be even huger. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I mean, everyone I've been talking to about this, they're like, this, they're like, this is nothing. It's going to blow your minds and we're going to see it in like within six months. Well, and you have to fine tune the technology too. It's not, yeah. this is again, this is right now it's being trained on like stuff off of Reddit and Wikipedia. And, yeah. you know, when you start actually training it against legal sources, uh, it's, it's, it's well, going to perform much, well, much better I on legal it, applications. It, it, and I when you can, form, I can see you, it. you can train <laughs> it on your own, like within, like say, you know, you have your own law firm, you can train it on your own, all of your internal stuff and, right train the model that way to fine tune it, to actually learn more of your voice and how you do it. And specifically, you know, if you're in a very niche area, 
learn the law, learn the law that way. Actually, I wish I'd interrupted you, Stephanie, because that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I was, I was actually thinking of, you know, as, as, as you, all of us have probably done in the past, you, you, you have a big complex case and you have to draft a statement of facts. And there could come a day where all of the depositions could be fed into a program like this, and it could spit out the first draft of a statement of facts with mm -hmm. the citations and the, all of that. And then which God used to drive me crazy to try to draft all that and find, oh, I remember so-and-so said such and such, and I've got to find it. You dig through and it's so, yeah. I think Can what it's a privilege for, log because then I'm all for it. <laughs> I think what it's best for right now is honestly replacing Google search. Um, and eventually it's going to be to the point where you can um, use it um, fairly confidently in legal uh, for legal work. But right now for, with Google search, Google has turned into such just a ridiculous, full of promoted crap and full of spam that mm. you can't locate anything anymore. And I found that going to chat GPT to look up a medical condition with my kid's knee to try and figure out maybe what it is, to find a recipe for just an authentic garlic sauce rather than, you know, it has been, it, it provides yeah. so much more precise, useful information for that type of thing than Google search. And that, so Google is, and there's a reason Google's, this has become, I think they call it a red alarm at Google or something. As soon yeah. as yeah. Come out, they've now have a whole team on it trying to compete yeah. with this because they, they used to be that accurate and now they're not anymore. And so I think chat GPT is going to come out with a pro version I just read that very soon. I'll pay for it in order to have better search than Google at this point, because I can't find anything online. You know, I had that exact conversation. Unofficially, I had a conversation with somebody at one of the big tech research companies, and they said they couldn't afford to implement chat GPT. So I don't know what it's going to cost at an enterprise level. Right. I sort of said, well, you know, like maybe you're not going to be in business in five years. You know, it's like. If, if well, it explodes, I mean, how can you, how can the big companies not adopt it? Right. I was going to I was going to say that I was I was slowly tempted to when I did my article on the Consumer Electronics Show to ask you know GVT to write the introduction for me. So I figured they could probably talk about how many people were there in the square footage and all that jazz. And then I thought, ah, oh, it's more people people aren't interested in that anyway. So I won't. I tried to use it the other day and it was busy. It literally went. I, I was, um, yeah. yeah. And then, and then when, uh, cause I was, I was actually, um, I was writing a comment and just for a laugh, I keep, I keep putting stuff in it for fun. <laughs> See, I was seeing how, whether he would do the better job. <laughs> Not that I'm competitive. I, I was, and then, and then it just went, oh, I'm busy. We're busy. We're at capacity. We'll message yeah. you when, and it hasn't, so I've had no message. So that, that comes. <laughs> But Nikki, what you were saying, I had that exact conversation with someone last night about how Google gives you garbage now. It's either all YouTube videos or sponsored. Yeah, I mean, blog posts. Yeah. Well, part, so. part of that, though, is the problem with, like, fundamentally, and this is, a, this is me, I'm going to be ranting old man for a second. Uh, kids these days, I generally, I generally think kids... But the kids are all right. But one thing I think they're wrong about is they don't understand the concept of files anymore. They're used to the idea of I type something in and magic happens and then I get it. What they don't understand is that Google magic was always because it was like it was originally called backrub, right? The whole point of that technology was it went through the backlinks where you had where the person who'd created whatever the website is had 
done some taxonomy work where they'd done some work saying, oh, this is a this and this and that. People don't do that anymore because they don't think it's necessary. And therefore, Google kind of is a turtle on flipped over on its shell. It's like going around trying to put things in the right place. And it doesn't, the, the kids aren't making that data anymore, which is a problem for them. But everything's paid for and optimized. It's a problem. Yeah. But isn't it also that their pay model is that their advertising model is they want you floundering around and not getting directly to what you're looking for. And so, so if you sort of, your answer first, you're off their website. Right. See, well, see, I, well, I'm not that sure that's, they work. That I'm not sure that's true. Best, uh, it is though. Option, but yeah. It, I'm not sure that's true. I think you land on these blog well, posts that are full of subtitles think, with every question everybody asks. And they don't even answer the question. They just create these SEO optimized posts that are full of nothing. And that's what you always right. land on first. Right. Yes. Because the only people who are doing the good tax taxonomy at this point to like Mac is to like gain that system are the people who are trying to get you to some weird spam site. That is definitely true. And Google is definitely giving preferred ad space and whatever. Part of the problem is that, you know, and I understand why people feel this way, but part of the problem is Google's gone to all this sponsored content and ad way because we largely, because we're skeeved out by it, have been taking steps as a society to gut their actual money, which is your data. They don't care whether if you hit the first thing on their website, that's great. Back in the day, it was like, that's great. We don't want you on our website. We want to know that is exactly what you want. So we can sell that to somebody who gets that data to somebody who can get you later. Um, but we all were skeeved out by Google knowing everything about us. And now, you know, here we are. Well, they still know everything about us and they're charging and making all this money is what I feel like. They got, they're, they're got greedy and they're, now they're evil. They're no longer doing no evil. They're full of evil. But I just wanted to mention, I would be derelict though, if I didn't mention that I did use chat GPT, I wanted to mention this really quickly, um, to ask it who were the top legal influence, legal tech influencers, just to see what it would say. And it gave, you know, if you ran it four or five times, it gave a whole bunch of different um, fairly useful results that at least were a good starting point. But from there, I crowdsourced it and I created a list. Um, and then I created a Google Doc because someone suggested it. I initially did this on LinkedIn, but I just wanted to share it in the comments because it did end up being a, a springboard to creating a pretty um, diverse list of diverse people. So because she left everybody on the show off voices. her list initially, but I, we won't mention that. DC, Greg says, sorry. was it more than Bob this time? That's... <laughs> sorry, Bob, I missed Don't rub it in. Don't I, rub it I in, said Greg. because you, you left off everybody on the show off your, the initial draft, of, or the, the uh, GPT left everybody on the show off its list. So it was clearly Is not, that how not this well started? I was like, literally, this is rubbing salt in the wound. <laughs> it was you and I were on it, Bob. It didn't leave off. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> of course we were. <laughs> I, did you see the one I posted this morning? I asked it like, who were the top influencers or something like that? And it, it named several people that had like their affiliations totally wrong. Like the the names were fairly good, but they are like, it had, uh, you know, like one guy is the CEO of Castex when he's not the CEO of uh, John Albert, I think it was. And uh, it was, it was, it was really kind of funny how it had the affiliations all screwed up, but um, all right. Um, yeah, uh, given so here's here's a stretch of a transition, I guess, because t t we were just talking about uh, 
uh, Google knowing everything about us and tracking everything about us. And that actually just came up in a conversation I had with a legal tech company this week because uh, there was this news of uh, Predicta acquiring uh, Gavalytics. Uh, and in talking to the CEO of Predicta yesterday, he said, well, you know, it's sort of like how Google knows everything about us. We know everything about judges. And that's how we're able to apply these analytics. Um, but I thought that was a, a kind of an interesting development. I don't know, Gene, I know you wrote about it a little bit, but uh, it was kind of a come back from the ashes uh, story for Gavalytics in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think every, at least I was incredibly sad because I thought Gavalytics was like one of the first startups to really tackle state court analytics, which are a nightmare. And I yeah. think the, the good thing about startups is that they inspire everybody to get into the race. And so uh, uh, the other larger companies started paying more attention to state court analytics. Um, but I thought, you know, I, I've I have to say, I can't ever remember a time when a company came back after dying, which I thought was a great thing. It's like Gavalytics is back from the dead. And basically, Predictor said we we they were only focused on doing federal court analytics and the uh, the Gavalytics data gives them a head start in taking on state courts. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm all for it. I think it's great, but I thought it was hilarious. You know, I, I looked at the LinkedIn profile for the owner of Dicta and he has, he's also the, the uh, co-founder of a company that uh, does cocktails in a bottle. So I was thinking it'll be, that he will have a really interesting you know, hospitality suite when we get to a conference. <laughs> Joe, it sounds like we need to be friends with this guy, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, yeah. Or the... Let me <laughs> we check the participants. Yeah, Let me check the participants in this chat. Let's see yeah. who's. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I mean, he's, I don't he's, anyone... oh, he's a finalist in our Legal Week Awards, so I'll talk to him and see what I can do. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, no, you know. Yeah. Dan Rabinowitz, is that the name? Yeah. Dan Rabinowitz, yeah. yeah. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, he's a former lawyer, he's a former about, travel lawyer too. Does anyone know about the terms? Because with the Gavalytics, it was what was interesting. I wrote about it too. Um, but with, it, it was June last year when they sadly, I mean, Bob, right. I think everyone wrote about this. It was a long time ago that they sadly said that they were folding. Right. And um, and it's so it's quite a long time afterwards to then and that, you know, to then for this to emerge. And I I then asked to get to thinking and I don't know the answers yet but about you know what does anyone know in terms of, I wonder what the terms of the deal was in terms of the value and whether how many people came on board and you know I need to do some more I don't know Bob you had another conversation you published another interview today did you I, I did yeah today uh but I, I don't I, they did not talk anything about terms I you know I mean it's interesting because there was a, a lot of you know I, I he did say, and as a matter of fact, I, I edited out a little bit on the, I did like a transcript of our conversation. I edited a little bit out because, but uh, a couple of things he sort of said off the record, but there's, there's, there's a backstory, I think here that we don't yet know uh, about this whole thing because he closed down so suddenly. I mean, it was like one day, you know, he just notified everybody all of a sudden. And even the people who worked there were taken by surprise that this was happening. Uh, and then, and then you, you kind of wondered at the time, like, why didn't he sell the assets? He had all this valuable data. Why would he just close down as opposed to sell what he had? So clearly that must have been his plan all along, not just the data, but the whole technology for scraping this data and keeping it up to date 
you know, which is probably even maybe even more valuable than the data itself at this point. Or so, they were already um, in talks. I mean, that's what I wonder, because I reached out uh, to, um, oh God, I'm so bad with the names, Rick. And he said to me, I'll get back to you. There's things going on. And and right. I never heard back from him, but I sort of didn't want to, you know, I felt like I, I don't want to force him to talk if he doesn't want to talk. You know? But then yeah, it's a funny I, announcement. I, it's a funny announcement. So, so they, my understanding said they, couldn't get funding so it reminds me a little bit of Ronan Court you know I know it's completely different but you know they couldn't get funding but then if they were going to sell the assets like why wouldn't they do why wouldn't they downsize or get you know or say we're going to we've got a plan or something rather than just sort of saying right this it, it was shut down it seems an interesting approach you can't get funding yeah. so you say you're shut down and then and then six months later you go Ta-da! yeah the other funny thing is that they shut down it was like on june 30th or something and then predict yeah. a launch on like june july 2nd or something no it was, it was like like literally a... the same day oh june, was it the same day june 29th yeah the interesting thing to me about the transaction is you know predicta has at least they, they claim that they go about analyzing uh, and predicting what judges will do differently than just looking at motions and what the judge has done in the courtroom, but looking at the judge's membership and clubs and relationships and attitudes and how they describe them, themselves. And <clears throat> so that could be uh, how that could all shake out with state courts could be, I don't know, it could be a, a different a different tool than what we've seen in the past. And it's mm-hmm. what I mean, the state court data is the holy grail because most of the litigation is in state courts. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I also wonder, like, actually, the, the kinds of data they were collecting, I'm not sure how much maybe it has. an. How do you weight it? That's the real thing. It's not just that you have data. You have to give different pieces of data different right. weights. And so how much weight are you going to give? They're, you know, whether they're a member of the Rotary Club or something like that, you know, personal information and then combining it with with public court data. Yeah. And there's a, you know, with the federal court judges, there's there's more um, more things that are public. Now, in public, public record, I guess. Um, But, I, you know, I wondered about that whole plan when he when it was first. when Dan first started talking about it, I know he, he had some statistics that he waved around, you know, about how good it was and all of that. But I, I, just, I don't know. With state, accurate, yeah, yeah. yeah. I with with state court judges, there's, there's a professor called state court judges. You know, most of them most of them are elected, so I guess you've got everything that they said to get themselves elected. But how about right. how valuable that is? As, as we have seen from recent politics, there are some people that will say anything to get themselves yeah. elected to positions like the House of Representatives speakership. Yeah. But we talked about that in our that interview. That only started this year, right? We talked about that in our interview because he said he said it's going to be, it's not just getting like the data from, from Gavalytics. They need to get all that other kind of data that they're using to help understand and predict behavior. Mm-hmm. And, and if it's an elected it right. state, they can get it more easily than if it's a non-elected state. It doesn't state. get it right. So this talk I heard by Dr. Hannah Fry at ILTA in London, 
she was talking about litigation analytics and automation and gave some amazing examples of how it just got it completely wrong. And she was saying, you know, that we are sort of slightly blindly trusting these analytics going, oh, hey, it's going to tell us about judge behavior and this behavior. She's saying she was giving examples. You know, to me, that's one of those interesting areas where we are really trusting the technology and, and people are making decisions on it. And actually, she gave some examples. So she was like, hey, let's stop and have a think about this. Yeah. I just wanted to go back to what Steve said a second ago. He made a, a a snarky remark about the House of Representatives. And listen, I'm going to stand up for former NBA all-star George Santos, who <laughs> whose resume is beyond reproach. Yeah. All right. Did, no. Did you uh, New York, yeah. the, it was the New Yorker piece on, on George Santos applying for a job, but it was a letter. Of, I forget what job he was applying Amazing. for. It's, it's really funny. It's really funny. No, but but uh, I, I put this uh, I I put this in our insider chat, I guess. But uh, did did you get any food at Ilta London, or did they just not? <laughs> it's a good we, question. Still I'm gonna, so, I'm bite my so I will out. have to say one one reason that I do go to CES <laughs> is they do give the media breakfast and lunch every day, and the media room is very close to everything that's going on. <laughs> we did get food we did get food at ilta it was actually really nice it was much much smaller um and then there were drinks as well like there was like a whole well i suppose there's drinks in in the u.s as well but yeah there was food huh. right uh, what's up with that <laughs> yeah you see you guys <laughs> so, need to come so, to london <laughs> so i'm trying to think of any good way to transition to a story about uh inadvertent disclosure or email ethics or no phone ethics. So uh, I can't think of any good way. So <laughs> um, how about it? The, the inadvertent disclosure story? Like, oh, it's like a good tech incompetence story, Stephanie. Yeah, it's a running theme, right? I'm either talking about AI or tech incompetence. Like, again, social security numbers of high profile people that visited the White House just not redacted and out there from the January 6th committee. I mean, and that's I mean, when we talked about like, who is, how many of these mistakes are there going to be? Who's QCing this stuff? How does this keep happening? It seems like the most basic things that people are getting wrong. Was that in, how did they get out there? I missed. I... Um, it was, I have to remember now. I've read so many articles today. Well, is it because people assume computers can read and they're not bothering to learn to read anymore? <laughs> Right. We're already relying too much on the computers, even right. though we can't trust them. <laughs> the output's horrible. And here we are just, we're stuck at this point. <laughs> I mean, it, it was just part of the committee just released a bunch of records and just in it was stuff they didn't redact. Like it wasn't, oh. it wasn't a leak. It wasn't anything. They just were like, we're releasing yeah. stuff as we do. And oops, here's a bunch yeah. of social security yeah, numbers. Your, your story, Cassandra's story says records release. Really, yeah. January 6th committee aide told the Washington Post records released publicly underwent a review process to redact yeah. personal details and other sensitive information. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> like they did it, but they just didn't do it right. Like it's just, right. there's not much to the story other than someone messed up yet again. Since I was traveling, I wasn't able to read this beforehand. Was it the classic, they, they redacted it, but anybody who copies and pastes it and into a new document, it shows up or was it just not redacted at all because that's the usual situation i remember back in the day where it shows up with all the black marks and then you just go 
as a journalist, I think we've all done this, the like, let's just see, copy it, paste it into Word, and everything's there. But well, here's what the, art, the article says, while the Social Security numbers were redacted from the Excel spreadsheet before it was made public, those under okay. a different tab were left untouched. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a manual process, and they just didn't do one of the tabs. No one understands Excel. I mean, I think that's fair. Just be, no one, no one understands spreadsheets. Right. It's a good excuse. Yeah. Who knows what it is? Mm. Pivot tables lawyer. are a whole other level of tech confidence. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you can't even print the things out for God's sake. Uh, oh, my biggest horror story from Big Law, which I won't get into, involves having to print out the world's largest Excel spreadsheet and spend all night taping it together. <laughs> yeah. Was that one of those uh, classic where a partner's like, whatever it is, I just want it in a binder. And you're like, well, it's 48 <laughs> binders. So here we go. 100% it was actually, there was only one binder, but the act one spreadsheet was nine pages wide. So I had to tape them all together and accordion fold it into a binder and three hole punch it just in you case. Know, that I don't know if they still do it, but back in the 90s, even uh, the Oxford English Dictionary would print things it would still be this big but it would be such small print that it would come with a glass right, like a magnified glass yeah. <laughs> i just read something it was like malicious compliance where a, a boss wanted an mp3 printed out and so the person did a screenshot of every single like here you go here's like 500 stacks of <laughs> screenshots because <laughs> they like insisted they wanted the mp3 file printed so, <laughs> all right. Well, maybe maybe we have a quick time for uh, mobile sharing phone contacts via mobile apps. Ethics of that, Nikki. I can go through that super quickly. So, um, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, and then I wrote about it again, but I um, haven't republished my blog yet. Pennsylvania looked at this, as did New York, and they came to slightly different conclusions, but similar conclusions. Essentially, it's this idea that lawyers have contact information on their app on their phones, and both uh, Pennsylvania and New York considered the issue of sharing contact information with apps and what are lawyers' obligations. Every time you download an app, you just click agree, right? Like we all just click agree because who's going to read through that? Um, and you know what are your obligations in that situation? And uh, essentially, New York said for they defined it as client confidentiality, and you need to take steps to preserve client confidentiality. And then Pennsylvania broadened it and said they agree with the conclusion, except that their description or their definition of, um, because of their uh, professional, because of their rules of professional responsibility, defined it as information relating to representation of a client. So not just client co confidential client information, but information relating to representation of a client across the board. And they both said that, um, that if the smartphone, uh, if your smartphone has information of either of those types, Client confidential client information or information relating to a client, um, depending on which jurisdiction you're talking about, then the lawyer may not consent to share the information with a smartphone app unless the lawyer concludes that no human being will view that information, that the information will not be sold or transferred to additional third parties without the client's consent. So I think what that essentially means is when you're downloading an app for a buck, you know, you paid a buck for the app, you're not going to, there is no way that you have the incentive to call the vendor or even the ability to call the vendor and vet the vendor. So I think it basically precludes lawyers, at least in those jurisdictions, from using the vast majority of apps. When you're purchasing software, 
it's a significant investment. And of course, you're going to get them on the phone and you're going to be able to get them on the phone to ask them all those questions about how they're going to handle the client data. You're not going to be able to do that with apps. So I think that going forward, lawyers are going to have to be really careful about the data they keep on their phones and whether they have a personal phone and a professional phone, which sounds like a pain in the butt, but you may have to start doing that or else not have any apps on your phone um, because, um, or have no conf- or have no client data whatsoever on your phone. Um, so you know, it's worth thinking about as we move forward. Several years ago, and I've not followed up with it because I'm very bad at, uh, at, at my job, but <laughs> several years ago, I remember meeting with BlackBerry uh, long after we all stopped using Blackberries. And Blackberry was, I was like, so how are you not, how am I not having a meeting with Word Perfect right now? And they explained that what they'd moved into was basically an app on your phone that you would open and all your client contacts and everything. It basically created a mirrored phone that was shielded where you could have all the client conversations and contacts and texts and all that sort of conversation, but it wasn't your real phone. So when on your real life, you said, oh, I use an app and yeah, I share my data. It was all sheltered. And I was like, that's a smart move. I don't know if that's how they, if they managed to keep going with that or everyone else figured it out too or whatever. But I was like, oh, that's, that's a smart way to keep going. Can't you segregate your contacts? I mean, if you have, if you're using, say, PyCase, that's a practice management program I've heard of. Oh, and can't you? Don't you have an app that you can just have your MyCase contacts in the app as opposed to in your phone contacts section, and then then you're not going to well, be with sharing. My case, I think with MyCase and most practice management software tools, you keep your data in the um, tool, and that's why, for example, MyCase has built-in texting. Um, and other providers yeah. in the legal. That's what I'm saying. If you're using my case on your iPhone, you don't need to have your client contacts in your iPhone contacts. You can just go to your right. my case app or Clio app or whatever it might be. Right. right. And, so you and can get keep around your that issue. Data segregated in the, you know, secure encrypted platform that you're using and paying for. And I think that that's a good point. Moving forward, maybe that's what lawyers are going to have to do. They're all going to have to use law practice management software. So it's unfortunate, See, but. Put in a plug for you there. Um, Caroline, you stayed up late and I didn't get a chance to call on you, but uh, I don't know if you. <laughs> I'm just laugh. I was just laughing at the. I keep my contacts taped to my monitor on a post-it note. I <laughs> know, <In the> <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's not fun. I think it's been fun. We've got through some stuff. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, I think that's uh, going to do it for this week. We're out of time, yeah. but uh, hopefully we'll be back uh, next week. We all survived the Friday the 13th edition of this show, thankfully. <laughs> and uh, see you all next week. Thanks for attending. Thanks. Thanks, Happy everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.